So I'd like to start by reminding us of a little fact here this morning, a fact that my faith and your faith are rooted in historical events, historical events based on actual acts of God in history to reveal himself and redeem his people. So it's a historical faith based on actual acts by God to reveal himself and to redeem a people. That's what our faith is based on, and we call it the story of salvation. And it didn't start on the cross. It can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden, real people, real places in real times. You say, I don't care about history. I hated it in high school, and I hate it now. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't see it that way. In his letter to the Corinthians and also to the Romans, we looked at it this morning in Sunday school, he wrote lengthy sections in his letters reminding the early church of things long ago. So long ago, the Apostle Paul was writing about long ago. Why would he do that? He answered the church at at Corinth. He actually told them, these things happened, and he's talking about Israel These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. These things happened, but they were written down for our instruction. Yes, that dusty Old Testament part of your Bible is good for our instruction. Hmm. Well, let's go to the book of Joshua then, and I have a timeline which I'd like to show you. Looking at this historical timeline, we're focusing our attention. You can see the red arrow. It's about 1300 BC. That's a long time ago. The people of Israel are no longer enslaved in Egypt. That's the lower sunken part. They're no longer enslaved to Egypt, and they've completed the 40 years of wandering. That's the upward sloping part. They're no longer wandering in the desert, which was followed by the death of Moses. And that concludes the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch. That's what Moses wrote. What comes next? Joshua. Perhaps a little reminder of who Joshua was. He was an Israelite. He was born in Egypt under slavery, probably right near the end of that sunken part He experienced the ten plagues. He watched in awe as God parted the Red Sea and then destroyed the Egyptian army as they pursued them. He started out as a young aide to Moses. He followed Moses into the desert, and he ate that nasty diet of manna and quail. But then God calls him to lead a makeshift Israelite army against the Amalekites, and he defeats them, and that's recorded in Exodus 17. And so very early on, we see that Joshua is not just a leader, not just a military leader, he's also a warrior. Not long after that, Moses selects him to be one of the 12 to go in and spy out Jericho, the promised land. He's a leader. He can be trusted. So Moses picks him as one of the 12. And you know the story. They go and they check out the promised land. And upon their return, only Joshua and Caleb, great names for your sons, only Joshua and Caleb are found to be faithful. And while I won't say they did everything perfect, 
They were faithful in this situation. They did the right thing. They spied out the promised land west of the Jordan and came back and exhorted the nation of Israel to get up and take that land. They knew God would be with them and they knew God would fight on their behalf. But history records that Israel was unfaithful. And so they spent another 40 years in the desert. Because of the decision of others, Caleb and Joshua had to wait another 40 years. But you know, there's no biblical evidence that Joshua or Caleb fell into despair or that a root of bitterness grew up inside of them. Disappointed, yes. Brokenhearted, probably. Sad, I bet. But not bitter. They had a promise. And did God keep that promise? You bet he did. And that's the title of this sermon series. It's called Realizing the Promises of God. It's a walk through the historical book of Joshua. And this book records for us true historical events. Not parables, not visions, true historical events. And this is episode eight in this sermon series. And if history is not your thing, perhaps geography will help. And so I have a map that I'd like to show you. This is a modern-day map with modern-day names and borders. And you, say, you see places like Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. And the one country I w I'd like to draw your attention to is Jordan. It's interesting, Jordan, that western border of Jordan, what does that fall along? That falls along the Jordan River. Kind of makes sense that Jordan and the Jordan River would go hand in hand. And then just on the other side of that border is Israel, and that red crescent is the West Bank, and Jerusalem is right in the nook of that crescent. Let's zoom in a little bit further, and I think I have another map for you that I'd like to show you. And you'll recognize some of the names on this map because we've been reading about them in the first eight chapters of Joshua. Here's a quick review from earlier sermons. In chapter 1 of Joshua, Moses has died. The 40 years in the wilderness are over, and God calls Joshua to lead the nation of Israel, and he tells him to be courageous. In chapter 2, Joshua spies out Jericho. We meet Rahab the prostitute, King David's great-great-grandmother. In chapter 3 and 4 of Joshua, the nation of Israel crosses over the Jordan, that's the green arrow, and it's a supernatural display of God's power. In chapter 5, the nation of Israel is camped at Gilgal, and we see the renewal of the covenantal signs. One of those covenantal signs was circumcision. By the way, an entire nation of men had grown up in the desert an entire generation of men had grown up in the desert and they hadn't been circumcised. So Joshua did that at Gilgal. In chapter 6, Israel undertakes a siege of the city of Jericho. They march around it seven times. The walls fall. They devote the city to destruction. And as a first city of conquest, it needed to be given as a first fruits. Key word, first fruits to God. No plunder was to be taken or at least no the plunder was supposed to be taken. But in chapter 7, we learn about the secret sin of Achan. It's revealed. God was abundantly clear. When you take Jericho, nothing was to be kept, but Achan and his family kept some of the spoils. And God knew it, and his anger burned against Israel. And in the end, 20 to 30 people are stoned. 
but several hundred thousand are preserved because of the cleansing and the removal of the sin. That's the low point, chapter 8, or chapter 7. But then in chapter 8, God increases his generosity towards a repentant Israel. He gives them the one thing they were really seeking when they resorted to disobedience. He gives them the plunder of Ai, which you see on the map. He gives them the plunder. Not allowed to plunder at Jericho, but now allowed to plunder at Ai. That's the red arrow. And this brings us to chapter 9 in the book of Joshua. And I've titled this sermon, The Gibeonite Deception. It's not a very clever title. It's probably the title in your Bible, actually. And we're going to read through this historical event about a city called Gibeon. Not Gideon the man, but Gibeon with a B. Heavenly Father, we believe that your word is your written word, and that it was written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when it is faithfully preached, your voice is heard. So Holy Spirit, help me handle this text correctly. I ask that this sermon would encourage us, especially me, to persevere in our biblical convictions, to persevere in our earthly ministry, and to persevere in our daily walk with Christ. And may this public proclamation of your word honor you and build your church. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, this is a good time to open your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, look in front of you. You'll find one of these. Well, that's the King James, but that's okay. <laughs> Turn to page 247. There is a Bible in the pew near you. Or open it on your phone or open the Bible you've brought with you. We're going to be reading 27 verses, so this is a good time to open your Bible. And we won't be showing it on the screen Several months ago, we decided that we wouldn't be projecting the text, uh, so that's why you need to read the text and have it with you. So Joshua chapter 9, it's the sixth book in your Bible. What can we learn about the character of God from this passage? And how does it apply to me in the 21st century, and how does the gospel apply? Well, we're going to walk through this text and answer those questions. And for context, just so you know, Israel, the entire nation of Israel, is presently camped at Gilgal, which you see on the map here. So yes, the army has gone and conquered Jericho and Ai, but everybody has returned back to Gilgal for rest. And starting in verse 1 in Joshua chapter 9, let's read together. It says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, which is in the north, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Well, clearly word was spreading throughout the region. And we'll read Later, that the people of the region knew, they actually knew about God's promise to give their land to Israel. They actually knew about the promise given to Moses. But I don't think they were really taking it seriously until they heard about Israel miraculously crossing the Jordan River and then conquering Jericho and Ai. And they would have heard that they have a God that fights on their behalf. And so, yes, fear was spreading. Well, what would we have done? What would you have done? Would you have run, fight, 
diplomacy. And we'll see that several groups decide to band together. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites all decide to band together to create a confederacy to fight against, Jer- against Joshua. But among the Hivites, there was a small subsection, a city called Gibeon, and we'll learn it had a few suburbs as well, but for the moment, let's just call it Gibeon. They decide to do something different. Continuing to read in verse 3, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, or what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Hmm, perhaps you live among us. Then how will we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said, From a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of your Lord, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Hezbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country, they're lying, said to us, take provisions in your hand for this long journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was warm when we took it from our houses as the food for the journey on the On the day we set out to come to you, but now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Well, what a sneaky bunch of guys. If you watch CBC television, like I do, Kim's Convenience, this is what you call a Mrs. Kim sneak attack. Any of you watch Kim's Convenience? Oh, just the wingers, I guess. And then maybe the McKelveys, (laughs) all right. (laughs) Oh, they knew very well what had happened in Jericho and AI, but they never mentioned it. They only mention what had happened on the east side of the Jordan River. After all, they've been trekking for weeks, right? They pretended they hadn't heard about the battles of Jericho and Ai. Well, don't misunderstand, though. These weren't a bunch of wimpy guys trying to avoid a fight. In chapter 10, we actually learn that Gibeon was actually a great city, and all its men were warriors. So what happened? Why this sneaky tactic? And we'll answer the why question in a moment. For now, I want you to see that they choose not to run 
They choose not to fight, and they choose not to use diplomacy. Rather, our Bible tells us they acted with cunning. Some translations say they acted craftily or wilily. That's the King James. It's subtle, manipulative, and deceptive. And make no mistake, they tricked Israel into thinking they had traveled some great distance. In fact, they had only walked about 30 kilometers. You can do that in a day. They pretended they had walked from Clarenville to St. John's when in fact they had only walked from CBS. And the ruse is successful. And we can picture the Israelites buzzing around, talking to themselves. Of course they're telling the truth. Look at this nasty food they have. It's all dry and crumbly. And tragically, Israel does not pray or seek counsel from the Lord. And as a result, Joshua makes a covenant with them. Essentially, a peace treaty. And they are fooled. But the story takes a bit of a turn in verse 16. It says, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and a few of these suburbs, Shephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured. So Israel's murmuring against its leadership. But all the leaders said to the congregation, "Mm, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. Oh, but this we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So that's the plan. That's what the leaders tell Israel they're going to do to satisfy the murmuring. They'll let them live, but they'll make them servants. It's kind of fitting. After all, back in verse 8, the Gibeonites actually said, we are your servants. So they agreed to make them servants. Then in verse 22, we read, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us? We are, and you said, we are very far from you when you dwell among us. Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything more than servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. So Joshua asks them, point blank, why did you deceive us? Verse 24 says, they answered Joshua. Because it was told to your servants from a, for, with a certainty, for a certainty, that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants from the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them, and he delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water 
for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So here's the sequence of events, just to make it more concise. The Gibeonites hear about a promise of God, from God, to Israel. They begin to see eminent signs of danger. The promise is coming true, it seems. Fearing greatly for their lives, they decide to act with cunning and trick Israel into a peace treaty. Israel falls for the ruse, and an oath is made in God's name. But then Gibeon gets caught, and they own it. And then finally, Israel doesn't destroy them out of anger, but instead are gracious towards the Gibeonites. What can we learn from this story? After all, it was 3,300 years ago. That's a long time ago. But if you divide by 20, a typical generation, that's about 165 generations. That still kind of sounds like a long time ago. But let me tell you this. I mean, just personally, James and Rebecca can go back eight generations in our family. They can name their parents and their grandparents, I hope. (laughs) But then we have paperwork that can show them their great, 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 great grandparents, all their names back through time. And we didn't use Ancestry.com, and we didn't use DNA, just good old-fashioned paper-keeping and record-keeping. What I'm trying to say is 165 generations really isn't that long. Some of you have four living generations right in your own families, living So we shouldn't try to separate ourselves from these events, deceiving ourselves that they have nothing relevant to teach us. The Apostle Paul was right. These historical events were written down for our instruction. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Did you notice that the devil, yes, the devil is involved, the devil used disguise and flattery in this story. The Gibeonites disguised their true identity And they flattered the Israelites by calling themselves servants and claiming that it was in the name and fame of the Lord their God that drew them to them. Disguise and flattery. David Jackman wrote, and I think we have this quote to show you. Follow along. David Jackman writes, Disguise and flattery are still among the enemies most often used and frequently successful weapons to bring about compromise on God's revealed will and required standards in our lives as his redeemed people. In our personal relationships, in our church life, in our homes and in our families, as well as in our professional life, we are constantly under pressure not to follow God's word in complete dependence and obedience but to make alliances with people who may seem impressive and charming, yet will lead us further and further away from doing the will of God. We are not to be ignorant of the devil's devices. We must never forget that appearances can be deceptive. Indeed, they very often are. So beware of the devil's weapons. His toolbox is not that complicated, it's not that deep, and they haven't changed much over the years disguise, and flattery. What are some other applications we can see from this text? Here are three additional things this passage instructs us. Number one, grace produces unexpected fruit. 
grace produces unexpected fruit. This really is a remarkable story, and if you look beyond the immediacy of this event, are you wondering what happened to Gibeon next? Oh, they were preserved in the moment, but what happened next? And here's a foretaste of coming attractions in future chapters of the book of Joshua. It turns out some of the neighboring cities get angry with Gibeon. I mean, they get really angry with Gibeon. After all, they were part of a confederacy. They were supposed to stick together, and some of the other kings decide, we need to send a message so that nobody else does this. And they decide to attack Gibeon. Of course, Gibeon cries out to Israel. Of course, they're friends, right? They've signed a treaty together. They cry out to Israel. And what does Israel do? They honor the covenant. And they defend Gibeon. They show further grace toward a people that had deceived them. It even says God fights on their behalf. And you'll see that in chapter 10. And God sends down hailstones on the other cities and their armies to protect Gibeon. So Israel is gracious toward the city of Gibeon, and God is gracious toward the city of Gibeon. So what does this act of grace produce? Grace produce unexpected fruit. How? Well, one thing we do know, about 800 years later, after the Babylonian exile, there's a guy named Nehemiah. And he's trying to rebuild those walls of Jerusalem. And in chapter 3 of that book, which Steve Dobb preached on back in 2016, we learn that the men of Gibeon were actually alongside working with the men of Jerusalem to rebuild those walls. And you know the story, building the wall with one hand and holding their sword with the other. The Gibeonites were still there 800 years later, building the wall. And they were completely assimilated into Israel many of them probably worshiping the same God. And that never would have happened had Joshua's army attacked and stomped on Gibeon for deceiving them. So don't be afraid to extend grace. You just can't predict the dividends. Only that God will glorify it in beautiful ways and he will use it and use it and use it. And it could be producing fruit after fruit after fruit long after we're long gone. Don't be afraid to extend grace. This story teaches us that grace can produce fruit in remarkable ways. The fact that this little Seventh-day Adventist church is being gracious towards Calvary Baptist Church, I'm confident, will be producing fruit and dividends decades from now. Something else to take from this text. Number two, God cannot be outmaneuvered. God cannot be outmaneuvered. Despite the devil's attacks and the people's weaknesses and their fallibility, God cannot be outmaneuvered. God is the hero in this story, and surely we're supposed to see his overruling sovereign hand. Oh, the devil had hoped to destroy Israel by taking this idolatrous, adulterous group of people and putting it right in the heart of Israel. And what does God do? He uses these very people, the Gibeonites, to be a blessing, to be a blessing to Israel. They end up cutting the wood and delivering it to keep the altar fires burning in the temple and bringing the fresh water for the cleansing rituals, both of which preserved and grew the ability of the Israelites to worship their God. What the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. And we sang about that earlier. 
This brings us to the cross. Could there be any clearer picture of the free gift of grace that our Savior, the perfect, sinless Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us? And what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus dying on the cross isn't plan B. It wasn't a victory for the devil. God cannot be outmaneuvered. And so that now, believers, we don't stand condemned, but redeemed and adopted and justified. And I think most of you have been baptized. We were talking about that in Sunday school this morning. And if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, I ask you, what's holding you back? Our bulletin provides instructions on what to do if you've been thinking about baptism. Do you lack courage? Well, that's the third point of this sermon. God wants us to be courageous. This is the reoccurring theme in the book of Joshua. God repeatedly commands Joshua not to be afraid and to not be discouraged. And it wasn't really an option. And for Christians today, it's still not really an option. God basically says, don't succumb to this. If you're afraid, repent, run to me, and run to this promise. We're commanded not to fear. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. It's a command. The reason we can be strong and be courageous and not fear and not be dismayed is that the Lord is going to be with us wherever we go. It's not a promise for physical strength. Be strong means be strong in the strength of the Lord. If this is true, there are other parts that follow. John Piper puts it this way. If I'm strong in the strength that God supplies, I can be courageous. If I'm strong in the strength that God supplies, I don't need to be afraid. And if I'm strong in the strength that God supplies, I don't ever need to be dismayed. For Christians, this is a strength that was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. We know that all the blessings that come into our lives, into the lives of sinners, comes through the purchase of Jesus Christ. The good news is that it's not about the amount of faith we have, but who our faith is in that matters most. And because of Jesus, we don't need to be afraid. But yet, so often we are. Okay, so you've probably never pretended to walk 300 kilometers only to walk 30 kilometers to deceive a foreign army from attacking you and wiping you out. But I'm pretty sure we all regularly give in to fear and it robs us. It robs us of our joy. It robs us of the opportunity to extend grace to one another. How many people have not received forgiveness because we were too afraid to give it to them? How many of our friends and coworkers are headed down the wrong road because we're too afraid to tell them about a holy God to whom they're accountable? How many people are not in this service today to hear the gospel because we were too afraid to invite them to hear the message of salvation? I'll say it again. The good news is that it's not about the amount of faith we have but who our faith is in that matters most. And with that in mind, I ask the question, do we believe? And do we act like it? I dare us to step out in faith and be courageous this week. 
to make that phone call we've been too scared to make, to offer forgiveness to that person who we've hurt or been hurt by, to give an invitation to share our faith. And here's a good one, surrender our life to the earthly ministry of this church. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, be courageous and step out in faith. Let's pray. Lord, you have been gracious with us. Despite the fact that we lack courage, and you've commanded us to be courageous, but we are so often afraid. Lord, that is sin, and it's um, something we want to repent of, and we want to run to you. That was one of the things we sang about today, that we would run to Jesus, that we would lay all our concerns and worries at his feet. Help us not be afraid this week. Holy Spirit, convict us and indict us. Help us be honest and face our fears and deal with them. In your name I pray, amen.